0: Could be here this morning if maybe you're new or visiting or you've forgotten. I hope not. But Bob's doing a series on Hebrews. And the theme of that series is Jesus is Better. And I love that theme so much. So, what I wanted to do this morning was while we're not going to be in Hebrews, I wanted to keep that theme of Jesus is Better going. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at one of these really cool Old Testament stories that I've always liked. And I've titled the sermon, Jesus the Archetype Hero. Partly because I really like that title and partly because that really fits into exactly what I wanna do this morning. However, if you would rather use the title, Jesus is the better hero, I'm okay with that too, because that'll keep with our theme of Jesus being better a little bit. But that's what we're gonna do. If you've got your Bibles or your device, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23, and um, we're also going to have it here on the slide. So I'm going to read the story, and then we will get into it. Just so you know, I put up here that there's the parallel to this story in First Chronicles 11. It's almost identical. So I put that up there just so you know that it is one of these ones that gets repeated in both history books like that. So let's Let's look at 2 Samuel 23, starting in verse 13. And three of the 30 men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it back to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Just a really cool story. I've always liked it. but been one of my favorites for years. Let's give a little bit of biblical and historical context, and then we'll get into the specifics. So, Adullam is mentioned about a dozen times in the Old Testament. It's in Genesis. If you read about the story of Judah and his wives, there's some people that came from that city. And then in Joshua, during the conquest of the Promised Land, that city gets mentioned a few times, too. So, it's a, it's a fairly significant city in that time. It's also one of the places that David hid from Saul. You know, a couple of times Saul is trying to kill David, and he goes down to like the Dead Sea and Getty and that area. But in 1 Samuel 22, it says that David went to this cave at Adullam to escape. So it's somewhere he, he knew about. And I don't know if you're like me. If you're like me, you love a good map to get the feel for the, the significance of somewhere and where things are. So here's a map. So on the far right, you kind of see Jerusalem's cut off a little bit, and below that is, is the red arrow pointing to Bethlehem. And then there in the middle, there's the arrow pointing to Adulam, and then right above that is the Valley of Rephaim that's mentioned here in the story. And I put one more arrow on the far left, um, pointing towards what's called the Valley of Elah or the Elah Valley, I put that because if you read about David and Goliath, when David's a little te- a teenager, he, that's where he defeats Goliath. So this is an area and a geography that David is well familiar with, okay? So that's why I put that other one up there, just to give you the, the context of where he's at. Today, if you go to Adullam, it's what we would say off the beaten path. If you know somebody that's been on a tour trip to Israel, I'll pretty much bet you that they didn't go there. It's in a nature reserve in Israel, kind of like what we would call a state park. There's no entry fees. There's nothing like that. It's just kind of in the middle of nowhere. You have to drive through, actually, a little community, and you get there. Um, We went last year on my Muslim filming trip just trying to look for different places connected to biblical characters. So here's the road in to Adulam. This is the smooth part. By the way, this, um, one reason our budget is pretty high on these film trips is I always rent an SUV because you're not going to get to some of the places we go in a car, and this is an example of one of those. So it was really cool, though, because it's one of those places, there was nobody there. There was a couple of guys dirt biking, I mean mountain biking, I'm sorry, and we ran past one couple um, walking their dog, and that was it. So we had the place to ourselves. We like to get to those kind of places so, there's, there's a sign for Adullam, which is where the, they call it a tell, the ruins were, and it's just a, a hill. I'll show you a picture of that later on. There's no sign for the cave. There's no marked path for the cave. It's just you kind of have to know it's there. So, I'm going to show you a short clip. This is from the show that we shot there that then was then put on Facebook actually this week. So this will just kind of show you what it looks like to get an idea of what it looks like now. So that just kind of shows you what the um, cave looks like. It's grown up. Uh, it, it's, it's not easy to get to. That was Dari that he's speaking. I'll talk a little bit more about that message in a little bit. But that just kind of gives you an idea of what we're looking at. It. So this is just a cool story in the Old Testament, but there's more to this than just a cool story. Um, and as I read it and studied it, both preparing to go last year and then getting back, I just saw this archetype for heroes in this story that Jesus fulfills and only Jesus fulfills. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna look at some specific characters and elements from the story. We're gonna see how that shows us that Jesus is the archetype hero. And then we're going to see how we can apply that and, and, and to our own lives. So you might be thinking this is an Old Testament story, how can it be a story about Jesus being the archetype hero? But that's the cool thing about the Old Testament. We, it, it was written, and then there's a significance in it. But then once Jesus came to earth, we can read the Gospels, we can study his life and his character, and then we can now go back and plug in Jesus into these Old Testament stories. In my opinion, one of the best verses in the New Testament is Luke 24, 27. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So I would argue that Jesus had in mind all these stories and he showed his these guys on the road to Emmaus how it pointed to him. Now, I'm going to do the best cuz I don't know. They didn't record that sermon. Jesus the Holy Spirit didn't lead Luke to write that sermon down, so I'm going to do the best part I can and see what we're there. I think there's a lot of significance in just looking at Jesus in these stories and for lack of a better word, falling in love with Jesus more and more. And for me, in the study of Hebrews, that's been one of those things that's been of great value to me, is just to see Jesus every week and to think about him and just more and more see how incredible he is and what he's done for us. But we do want to apply it too, so we're going we're gonna to do that as we go. So we're going to start with the three mighty men, and we're going to see that the hero fights. These three men risked their lives to bring water from Bethlehem back to King David. Hard to kind of in our minds to see what did that look like, so I'm going to give you one more map, a modern map of Israel. This is, I put it in Google just to see what it said. I don't know what route they took back then, but either way, it's about 18 miles of walking from Adulam to to Bethlehem, okay? Google says six and a half hours. Now, that does not include fighting and drawing the water and all that. Just to give you a frame of reference, that would be like walking out the door of First Church this morning and walking to Colonial Williamsburg, and then walking back, okay? It's 13 miles, I mean, um, excuse me, it's about 18 miles to Colonial Williamsburg from here, so 36 miles of walking. By the way, it's not flat there either. It's very hilly. It's not like walking the Williamsburg being flat. It was up and down and through these valleys. And they had to fight. Verse 16 says they broke through the Philistine camp. That word broke is a very strong word in Hebrew. It would be the word used for chopping wood. It's the word used for tearing a garment. You know, when someone back then was upset, it said they rend their garments. Same word. It's also the same word used for when God divided the Red Sea. Okay? So this was not a leisurely stroll in the park. This was a combat mission behind enemy lines. And David acknowledges that because David says, you can, we read it, he said, these guys risked their lives to bring me this water. They could have been killed. I, I think these guys were heroes. I think today they'd get a movie made out of them. I think maybe they should make a movie out of it anyway. And it's not hard to see that these three guys point us to the hero. So these guys traveled 36 miles, right? Jesus traveled from heaven all the way to earth. Jesus didn't bring a gift of water. He brought the gift of eternal life. Jesus didn't risk his life. Jesus shed his blood and gave his life. Jesus didn't fight and defeat some Philistines. Jesus fought and defeated death, hell, and the grave. And it's not just that. Jesus' life on earth was full of conflict, full of struggle. He constantly faced opposition from the religious leaders. Um, There's these active plots going on by these different groups to kill Jesus. Every turn he makes, he seems he's facing some kind of demonic activity. And if we see half the time, his followers are, are arguing amongst themselves about, oh, who's going to be the greatest and all, who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left. So there's this constant fighting going on around Jesus even when he was here. He was in a struggle. So how do we respond? I would say that we respond by fighting. Now, we know that this is used figuratively. We're not taking up arms, but we are also literally in a war. When When you get the opportunity to preach and you don't know what music's coming, but the music lines up with the sermon, it happens a lot, and it's really cool. So that new song we sang this morning, I'm like, wow, that was really cool. I didn't know that that song was coming. But it's that idea of the song was saying, the the war's been won, but we're still in the fight. It's the already not yet idea. If we look at the Apostle Paul, his most common metaphor for the Christian life is a soldier. We read about putting on the full armor of God. We read that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We read that we should share in the suffering of Christ as a good soldier. At the end of his life, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. Jesus actually uses a war metaphor as well. When he's talking about what it's like to be his follower, he uses the illustration of a king going to war, okay? So I think we just need to remember that we are in a fight, we don't need to be scared, but there is spiritual warfare going around us, we need to understand that. Um, John Eldridge, he talks about this, and he argues that we'll miss 90% of the things that happen to us if we don't understand that we're at a war. Now maybe you say, well maybe 90% is too high, but the point is, there's a lot of things going around that if we don't understand they're in the context of spiritual warfare, we're gonna miss it. So we need to fight. So now let's look at David, and we see from David that the hero leads. Now, anytime we see David in the Bible, immediately we need to start thinking about Jesus because he is a type and a symbol of Jesus. He is the ancestor of Jesus. He's also the one whose throne Jesus will take. Jesus will sit on the throne of David eternally but he's also a type or a symbol, an imperfect type or symbol, because David had sin, we know that. But still, he is something that points us to Jesus when we see him. And what a leader David must have been. He's got this core group of men that follow him in the good times and in the bad times. They leave their homes behind. Sometimes they're forced to take their families with them and leave their homes. Sometimes they leave their families behind but they're fighting in battle after battle, risking their lives for David and Israel. They knew the Philistines had to be defeated. They knew that this land had been promised to them by God and they needed to claim it. But there's something significantly different in this story and that is this was not an order. David didn't say, go do this. They were good at following orders, they were military guys. But this was not in order. This is David just saying out loud, oh, I wish somebody would go get me some water from Bethlehem. Now, I'm using my imagination a little bit. You need to, too. But I imagine there's this group of guys around David, and they're whispering, you know, okay, so David wants water from Bethlehem. I mean, it would be nice. I don't know what they're thinking. They're like, yeah, we'd all like to have some. But I imagine these three guys looking at each other and maybe smiling And then they start walking. Maybe they made their plan and then left. Maybe they walked and made a plan along the way. But Bethlehem's a long way away. He got an 18-mile walk. But it's nothing for these guys. David is their leader. And then you think about, all right, they're on the way. They got to break through the enemy lines. I, I don't know what they were thinking. I think they're thinking David, you know, he killed the biggest Philistine, Goliath. I guess we can handle their B team. Maybe that's what they're thinking. I don't know. But why would these guys do this? Why risk your life for a little bit of water? Love is the only thing I can come up with. They loved David. Now, we're not exactly sure the timing of this story. It could be that David is already king, or it could be that he's been promised to be king. But either way, these are guys that are following him. And yeah, they followed orders, but this is beyond orders. Orders... Following orders is the duty and honor of a soldier. Soldiers follow orders. Friends act out of love. These guys were soldiers, but they were friends. And out of love for their king and their leader, they go and risk their lives. How much better a leader is Jesus than David? And Jesus is calling each of us to follow him and let him lead us. What are we willing to do for our leader? What are we willing to do for our king? What will we do for the one who calls us his friend? Will we risk everything? Are we going to go where others won't go? Or are we going to go when others won't go? Are we going to stay in the cave or are we going to go to Bethlehem? Now, was it wrong for the other guys to stay behind? I don't think so. But this was not an order David gave. This was out of love. So what is our motivation? Why do we do the things we do? I would argue it should be love as well. Now, if you remember back, and it's been a little while, it's been a piece since we've been in Hebrews 6, but if you remember back to Hebrews 6, it says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The author of Hebrews is telling us God sees not only what we do, but he sees the motive for what we do. And we see here that our work should be done out of our motive of love, love for what God has done for us. We do not serve God, we do not follow Jesus so that we can earn his love and his favor. We have the love and favor of God, so we serve him out of love. The next element of the story I want to look at is water. And the slides messed up. I'm sorry. It should be the the hero gives life. So we see in the Bible water a lot. And anytime you see water, at least take time to notice and see what's it being used. Water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of God working as a symbol of life. It's a lot of different things. So, David wants this water from Bethlehem. We're going to look at the significance of that in a minute. But I'm just thinking about this symbol of water in the Bible. Um, there's another person who wanted water. David wants water from a well in Bethlehem. There's another guy in the Bible who wanted water from a well. This one is about due north of Bethlehem in a place called Sychar. And obviously, that. That woman, I mean, that man was Jesus. And he asked this Samaritan woman for the water. And then this is what Jesus says to her. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give Him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And then later, John 7, he's at the temple. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We take water for granted today, I think, just because it's so easy to get. Back then, your entire life revolved around water. Every day, every plan, every activity. Do I have water? Can I get water? Is the place I'm going going to have water? Do I need to take water with me? Everything revolved around that. That's not something I think most of us have experienced in the West. The closest I've come, it would be Arizona. If you've ever been on one of the trips out there, maybe you can get a glimpse of that. I was on the first trip um, with Bob and Bill was on that trip, Bill Manning. uh, I think we figured out 30 years ago, something like that. And we were the first very trip, we were in a different location than all the other ones. We were a place called uh, Grand Falls, and it was a bit more remote. And one of the days, one of the Navajos from the church said, we're going to go to one of the remote churches. And we're thinking, okay, I thought this was remote. Well, we found out that there's a different church that's more remote. And uh, he's like, make sure you bring water. So we brought water. Well, we start driving, and we're driving down these dirt roads, and it's Hours, and it's like come to a dirt road crossing and turn right here. I mean, we would all been goners if if we if he would have had a heart attack or something, because there's no signs, there's nothing. And you're just hour after hour through the desert. Um, you know that was back in the mid '90s. You know nobody had a cell phone. We weren't millionaires, and besides, there wouldn't have been a signal out there anyway. So that was a time that if we'd have broke down it literally could have been a difference of life and death. But that's kind of what life was like back then. So we have to understand that to understand how significant these metaphors of water is. And that constant life and death need for water points us to our constant life and death need for God. The real water David needed was God. The real water you and I need is Jesus Christ. We know this and I put myself in here, we know this, but how many times do we put this into practice in our lives? Do we really see Jesus as the one thing that I need to make all my plans around because that's the thing that's gonna help me survive? The next thing I see is the sacrifice. And here we see the hero gives life. It's very interesting that these guys went through what they went through, walked so far, fought, risked their lives, and they get to David, and he takes the water, and he pours it out as a sacrifice, and that's really what, it, what, it, what the word there is, and it's, to me, very interesting. When we were last year at Adulam, um, me and my colleagues, Hussein and Chris, we were talking about this story, and Hussein was said, he said, this is probably the only place in the Bible that there's a water offering. And I put a little pin in that because we were busy, and I said, I'm going to look into this later. And I've looked, and I cannot find any other water offering in the Bible. There's drink offerings. That's usually wine or olive oil. So there's other liquid offerings, but I can't find anywhere else there is a water offering. I think that's important because there's this biblical theme that it's the heart that matters, right? God says over and over to the Israelites, I'm tired of your sacrifices. Why? Because it's not the sacrifice, it was the motive behind it. Okay? I also see an interesting connection in this passage to communion. I think we did it two weeks ago. Um, David says, shall I drink the blood of the men who risk their lives? Now, David really wasn't going to drink their blood, correct? I personally think this passage helps us understand one of the more difficult things Jesus said. Because in John 6, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, People left Jesus. Some of his followers said, all right, it's got too crazy, I'm gone. And some of the people left because of that. Now, we know that this is Jesus illustrating the Lord's Supper, okay? Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper before his death. He's given a little glimpse here, and then we have the, final, the last supper. You know, David was speaking figuratively, and so was Jesus. David says, I'm not going to figuratively drink the blood of these men that risked their lives. Jesus says, you are going to figuratively drink the blood of the one who did give their life. And I think it's just a neat connection between this story and Jesus. After his death, Paul tells us that, you know, Jesus gave his life for us and and we drink the cup and we take the bread as a symbol to remember his sacrifice. And we've seen in this study of Hebrews that Jesus was the better sacrifice. Jesus was the once and for all final sacrifice. These men risk their lives to bring David water. He gives it as a sacrifice. Jesus came as the sacrifice and gave his life willingly. So how do we respond? The hero Jesus gave his life, we need to give ours. To live the life God has called us to, it means to give up our lives. The best possible thing we can do is give up our lives to Jesus. Paul talks about being crucified with Christ. Paul talks about sharing in the cross with Christ. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. And and you can see other examples of Jesus saying this. If we're going to really live the life God's called us to, it means giving up our life for the sake of Jesus. And now we see David's request. And we see that the hero fulfills. Um, I, I know nothing about cameras, technology, sound, video, audio. I don't know anything about all that stuff. I can run my basic things I need to run, my phone and my computer. That's about it. So these filming trips, I am not going to run films. I'm going to, I make the plan. I do the budget. I set up and rent everything, get everything set up. And I'm the one that kind of gets everything ready. So when we get to a site, I bust out the Bible with the verses and the significance of where we're at, okay? So that's kind of my role in this. So when we get to um, Adulam, Hussein asked me, he said, why did you bring me here? And I said, well, we wanted to do something connected to David. We read the story and all that. And then he said, somewhat rhetorically, is there not water around here? This is, uh, this is a picture of Adulam. And we were all kind of together like, yeah, there's water here. I mean, look how green it is. Um, Adulam was an important city, so they had cisterns, they had wells, there are streams running around. And one reason I showed you that Valley of Elah on the slide, remember David goes to a stream and gets five smooth stones? That stream is almost in sight of here, a lot closer than going to Bethlehem. So why is David asking for this water from Bethlehem? Now, and Bob said this last week, I'm going to say the same thing. I want to be careful when we get into biblical languages. I don't, I'm not trying to criticize any particular translation, but I just want to share a few things that have helped me understand this story and the significance. Um, and the first one is in the beginning of verse 15 when it's talking about um, David longing and then asking for the water, if you look at it in Hebrew, it literally says, and desired David and he said. And that word desire or longing, that is the same word in Deuteronomy where it says do not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's field, same word, desire, covet, very strong. And with the structure of biblical Hebrew, the fact that that's the verb that led the sentence is significant, okay? So it's saying that this desire or this longing is the significant thing in that sentence, okay? And as we've seen here, it's not really about getting water because there's plenty of water around, okay? It's something else. So when we were talking about this, um, we were trying to figure out exactly what to do, and, and Hussein looked at me, and he said, David was homesick. And I'm like, yeah, I think that's it. And he said, well, I know what I'm going to preach. And I started thinking about it. You know, we lived in Bulgaria. I mean, I don't know how many times I was like, I'll give you $100 for a Krispy Kreme donut right now. <laughs> Maybe not 100 I said 100 but I would have got close. Or I'd give you my next paycheck for a Plaza Azteca meal right now. Uh, maybe not, but it was just a way to say I'm, I missed home. And I don't think David missed the actual water. If you look at that verse where it says the well, it's not the normal, there's a main Hebrew word for well, and you all know it, even if you don't know, you know it. If you know the city, Beersheba, Be'er that word bear, that's well, okay, that's not the word here. It's another word that's usually translated cistern or pit. Um, a well, you know, is dug down to the water table for fresh water. Um, a cistern just collects rainwater and runoff, and it's kind of still and stagnant. That's probably based on what's going on at Bethlehem, probably what was there, I would say there's at least as good, if not better water available right here at Adulam. But I think David missed home. It wasn't that David was thirsty. It's that David had a desire and a longing for home. So Hussein said, I know what I'm gonna preach. He said, there's millions of Afghani refugees that are all over the world and they all wanna go home. In fact, this blew me away. He said in Afghani, in the Dari language in Afghanistan, they have a saying that says, I want to taste the water of Afghanistan. And that's how they say I'm homesick. They don't use the word homesick. They say, I want to taste the water of Afghanistan. I'm like, wow, that's, that's just the way it fits in here. You know, and a couple of years ago, our family helped hundreds of Ukrainian refugees when we were in Bulgaria. And every one of them said, I just want to go home. They didn't want to be in Bulgaria, they didn't want to be in these cities. They wanted to go home. Even the ones who knew that their, their home city was destroyed, they're like, we want to go home. One of the ladies Angela kept in contact with this summer, sent her a message and said, yeah, we're going to go home to Nikolov. I, Nikolov's on the front line. It's pretty much gone. But she's like, yeah, we're going to go home. Why? Because that's their home. That's what they knew. And I think most of us have probably experienced some homesickness, even if it's the kid, you know, going to camp for the first time and you get homesick, something like that. And that's a normal human emotion, but it has a purpose. Homesickness should point us to our real home. Our real home is heaven and eventually the new heaven and the new earth. You know, David, he wanted to be home in Bethlehem. The children of Israel wanted to be free from Egypt. Hannah wanted a son. Judas Iscariot wanted money. The rich young ruler wanted his possessions. And today, people want money. People want a home. People want security. They want a spouse. They want a legacy. And there's nothing in themselves wrong with those things unless they come before God. And those desires in us are all meant to point us towards our need for Jesus. And only that relationship with Jesus made possible by his death, burial, and resurrection will fulfill those desires. So when you have those desires, they're meant to point us to Jesus, Now, we know David wasn't perfect, but we do know that David knew his need for God. Look at what David wrote in Psalm 27. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. There's no temple, right? The temple has not been built. David asks God, will you, will you let me build the temple? And God says, no, your son's going to build it. So there is no temple here. So what's David saying? David's talking about that relationship with God being the most important thing. David's a man after God's own heart. That's what God called him. Even though we know he ha- had problems with adultery and murder and these things, but why, is, why does the Scripture tell us David's after God's own heart? because he knew this need for God. And I love when there's these Old Testament and New Testament parallels that line up so well. You know, David talking about drinking the blood of these men, Jesus talking about drinking his blood, these parallels. You know, David says this about this one thing, seeking after the house of the Lord. And then Jesus comes along and says, seek you first the kingdom of God. That's, The New Testament version of this Old Testament verse, seek ye first the kingdom of God. I'm just going to put in a commercial, pray for um, Muslims. God is doing an incredible work in the Muslim world. Some people estimate that the fastest growing church today is the church in Iran. It's incredible what God's doing. Pray for the people of Afghanistan. Um, My friend Hussein, he did the show this week. And he said it just had such a significant impact on people because there's so many problems in Afghanistan and there's so many people that miss home and, and, and people are being led to the Lord because of, of shows like this and, and things other do people. So keep praying for the Muslim world. God is doing, just like I said, some amazing things and, and keep praying for that. Um, I'm gonna admit to you that I am a big uh, Sylvester Stallone fan, especially Rambo. Uh, but Rocky, all that, I love, I love, uh, I love them. I love Sly. In fact, last year in Israel, um, I don't know whether you know this, Rambo 3 is set in Afghanistan, but it was actually filmed, a lot of it in Israel. So we went to one of the places that they filmed Rambo 3 and did a message about that. But that's a story for a different message in a different time. But that just shows you how much I'm a, I'm a Rambo fan. So um, this week one night, um, I was sitting down to watch something before bed, and like everybody, I think, I'm, I was trying to wa- I'm trying to watch less and trying to binge less, but I felt like I needed a little mental break. And I noticed on Netflix, there's this documentary on the life of Stallone called Sly. And so I said, ah, oh, man, I, 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 I got to do it. So I start watching it. And in the context of prepping for this sermon, I just, I got blown away. So Sly's born in New York, rough neighborhood, Hell's Kitchen, and it was named that back then because of how bad it was. Um, not a good home life in the terms we would use today, neglect, abuse, all those things, end up being divorced, split home, all this kind of stuff. So Sly and his brother would go to movies, and that was escapism. He says that. We would go to every movie we could. Didn't pay for any of them, obviously, sneaking in, but they would go to every movie they could. And then they would come home, and he would, he would imitate those movies, okay? So one time in the 50s, they went to this movie um, called Hercules Unchained, I don't know if you've seen it. It's starring a guy named Steve Reeves, who was Mr. Universe. Google it when you get home. Big old boy. I, wasn't gonna, I didn't want to put a bare-chested hunk of a man on the screen, but trust me, it's there. And if you've seen it, there's this scene where he tears this, he's chained the temple, kind of like Samson, he tears it down and kills all the people and everything. And this is what Stallone said. I, I ran back and ran the subtitles so I could quote him. Um, I really, really want to do this in my Stallone voice. But it would be so good that you'd be distracted by how good it was and not hear what I had to say. So I'm not gonna do it for your own sake. You have to come to me afterwards and we do it. All right. So he watches this movie, and this is what Stallone says. I quote, this ridiculously handsome, well-built, perfect role model. That did it. I go, there it is. That's the road. I finally had a role model that I idolized. I'm thinking, whoa, it blew me away. And that's exactly what Stallone did. He modeled his entire life after this guy on the TV. He couldn't get cast in lead roles in movies, so he wrote his own movies and cast himself as the lead, Rocky being the first example. This guy built his entire career around the life of an actor in a movie he saw. And I thought about this week, what if I looked at Jesus that way? What if we looked at Jesus as the hero of the story of human history? What if we looked at Jesus and we said, this ridiculously kind, radically gracious, perfect role model, that does it. There it is. That's the road. I finally have a role model worth idolizing. And then in what if we went out and really built our lives around the hero Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we love you, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these incredible Old Testament stories that point us to you. Father, we thank you for being our hero. We thank you for being the hero that came down and rescued us from the grip of sin and hell and death, and Father, we pray that we will take time this week to look at you as our role model, to see you as the one that we need to model and build our life around. We love you. We thank you for the privilege it is to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.